Don't we have a lot of things to be thankful for? You know, in the midst of all the tragedies that's been swirling around us in our community, you know, this past week I thought, man, here's another one. A couple of our church families, their dad, uh, Chuck Egner, went lost in the, in the, in the woods in Illinois and, and on Wednesday afternoon we were praying and uh, uh, diligently praying. And I, I would wake up in the middle of the night praying and I, said, I would say things like, God, you know exactly where Chuck is right now. You know exactly where he is, wherever that may be. And it had gotten down to the point they thought that maybe Chuck had, had gotten in a vehicle with somebody and left because he was nowhere to be found in the area that they thought that he was. And uh, I knew that it was getting really close to them shutting down their, their search efforts because I was on the phone with Phil uh, yesterday morning. And we began to talk about some of those hard questions, some of the things that you, you have to go, the places that you have to go in times like that. When all of a sudden there was a scream in the background. They found him. After three days in the woods, a guy in British Columbia that was hunting that had a camera by technology got a bleep. There was a picture of Chuck. When the wildlife guy got there, he was sitting on the log. He had some acorns that he had piled up and he was eating them. And he looked back at the wildlife offer and said, look, man, I'm, I'm thirsty. You got some water to drink. <laughs> Phil said, I think I'm going to kill my dad. <laughs> I just thought, Lord, aren't you so gracious? So here we are in the middle of wanting to give up. And yet you did something that was so amazing. Thank you for those of you that prayed that uh, we celebrate with Phil and Lauren and Jordan and Casey and their families as they as they bring Chuck home probably today. But listen, let's uh, let's talk about God's word. Can we do that? I want you to turn to the book of Matthew. We're going to look at a passage of scripture that we've looked at in the past. We're going to talk about something that's extremely difficult. Some of you guys are going to really have some uh, you're going to have some emotions about this. Because anytime you deal with the issue of finances or stewardship, there's always this cringe. And we don't mind talking about finances as long as it's about getting more of it or earning more of it. But when it comes down to maybe what the God's Word has to say about it, sometimes it can cause us to, to, uh, to cringe just a little bit. Um, over the next couple of weeks, few weeks, I'm going to share some things that I think that God has, has laid on my heart, some things that I have learned uh, over this past year, and it, it got down, it got down to the place the other day. I was sharing with somebody, and uh, I think it was Mr. Bob. We were talking about sometimes in life you get down to that place that you just sort of got to giggle because you go, you have to say to yourself, "God, you, you're involved in this. You you know exactly what you're doing, and you're involved, regardless if it's times of difficulty or or just reflection." And you just get to that place, you go, "It's." It's to the point that you go, God, I know that you're involved in this. And I had told Bob the other day that I was just reflecting on all the different things that were going on financially that I've had to expend over the past year. And it was something else the other day that it triggered it. And I thought to myself, God, you're involved in this. You're trying to teach me something before I go into these, these weeks talking about finances. And I said this to myself. I said, Lord, just take it all. It's all yours. I, okay, I'm just joking, but, but look. 
But I want to talk to you the past, over the next several weeks about some things that God's Word has to say about, about finances, about stewardship, and how we should handle our resources. Now, there's a couple of things that I've learned over the years. When we first started Heritage, uh, one of the, there were some long conversations among leadership of, of what we should do with tithing offerings, because you guys know that if you talk to people on the outside, one of the, one of the comments that they'll make is things like this. The only thing the church always talks, it seems like every time I go into the, into the walls of a church, the conversation is about finances, and the only thing they want is your money. And we knew that, and we talked about how do we offset that distraction as a church body. If we're going to reach believers or non-believers, if we're going to reach those that are far away from the Lord, how, how can we maybe do things a little bit different that would not necessarily set us apart, but what it would do is it would remove some of the distractions for those people that we were trying to reach. And so early on, we made a decision that we would put, um, we would have a box and where people could put their tithes and offerings, and we really wouldn't make a big deal out of it. Um, and that was a decision, and I'm so thankful that we did that. See, now we get you coming and going, and we just don't take up an offering, but as you come in, you got, you got to pass it, and you go, you're supposed to laugh at that, right? <laughs> but on a serious note, I think there are a couple of reasons why when we talk about finances in the church, or anytime you talk about finances, I think there are a couple of things that, that really cause us, um, causes us an issue. And I think one of those is the abuse by leaders. I mean, if you go back, how many times have we seen something printed or you've heard a story where financial um, accountability has not been there and then there's been the mus misuse of resources? I'm very thankful for what we have in place here and for the accountability that goes on. I know people don't understand this and you don't believe this. I have no earthly idea. This is where I can speak very, very, um, very openly and candidly. I have no clue what you give. So I'm a little bit different because if I were to know, I'd probably be knocking on your door all the time and saying, why aren't you doing that? I'd be like some of the other places that send you a note. But that's not it. I have no earthly idea. The system that we have in place is tremendous. It is very accountable. And I'll tell you what, our overseers and trustees feel very responsible for what happens here and how we use the resources. But not only one of the distractions has been abused by leaders in the past around the world, but also, I think another one of the distractions is people don't like to hear about finances is because they don't do what they're supposed to do. Did I say that right? Sometimes we don't want to talk about what God's Word says because we're not doing what God's Word has to say. In other words, one of the reasons is that we don't want to hear Scripture, what it has to say and what the Lord wants us to hear especially when we're not doing it. Now listen, I want to give you some statistics in reference to evangelical Christianity. I want to share with, with you some of these because I think that um, they're very important for us to understand that there are many people who profess to be evangelical Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, that when it comes to the tithe and resources, they aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. So here are some of those statistics that I found that come from very reputable sources. Number one, Christians only give 2.5% per capita. During the Great Depression, that percentage was 3.3%. For Christian families, listen to this, making less than $20,000 per year. $20,000 per year. I don't know how you can survive on $20,000 a year. But out of those making $20,000 per year, 8% of them gave at least 10% in tithe. For families making a minimum of $75,000 or more, that figure drops to less than 1%. 
37% of the people who attend church every week identify themselves as a believer or an evangelical, yet they don't give any money at all. None. Another one, people who tithe regularly typically have less debt than other demographics. Eight out of 10 have zero credit card debt. 28% of them are completely debt-free, and that includes not having a mortgage. And then I thought this was interesting as well. You want to talk about benevolence, even those who are not believers are benevolent. Three out of four people who don't even go to church make donations to non-profit organizations. But what's interesting to me, and this is just sort of a, a sort of get us going type Sunday, so I want you to hear that. This is not really the meat. We're going to really get in some heavy meat next week. But I want you to understand that Jesus never sidestepped this issue as, as hard as it was or as difficult or maybe as distracting as it was, but he hit it head on. As a matter of fact, there's some people that did some research. I've not done this, but they've sat down and they've looked and they said Jesus spoke more about the issue of finances and resources than he did in heaven and hell. They will tell us that there are, more, there are 500 scriptures that deal with the issue of prayer, 500 that deal with the issue of, of faith, but more than 2,000 scriptures we find in the Bible that deal with money, resources, and stewardship. And Jesus spent an awful lot of time talking about finances and resources, and I promise you that there was a reason that he did that. Now, I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 6 if you're there, because I'm going to be there in just a second. But before we get there, this is what Paul had to say. You've probably heard this somewhere before. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, Paul, in writing to Timothy, said this, For the love of money is what? The root of all evil. That's what Paul said. He didn't, he didn't say money was the root of all evil, but he said what? The what? The love of it. The affection for it. I want you to, to go back and think about some of the mistakes and the uh-ohs that you've had in your life, the things that you could look back and you wish you could take back. How many of those um, mistakes and more your moral failures could be tracked back to an issue dealing with finances? Wow. A lot. And so it was Jesus himself that taught us how to use and how to steward resources. And he also said it was an indicator of, of our heart and the spiritual, our spiritual condition. Let me say this. If you were to take um, the business world today, and uh, let's just say you've got this big business and you've got big departments and you've got leaders for every one of those departments Let's just say the boss man was to come in one day and he were to ask, let's take a look at the bottom line. All right, well, he wants to take a look at the bottom line. He's not talking about how many resources that are going out. He's not talking about the customer satisfaction. He's not talking about the amount of the employees that are working for the company now, but he's talking about what? He's talking about money. He's talking about the bottom line. That's what he's talking about. And so it's interesting when Jesus was looking at the bottom line with those people that he was teaching or interacting with, when he was assessing the spiritual health and condition of the human heart, he did not look at the temple attendance. He did not look at acts of service. He did not look at how many passages that they had memorized. Yet how many times do we tend to judge other people and their spiritual maturity based on what we see with our eyes or what a person we think knows? But Jesus never looked at anybody and said, oh my goodness, look at how many times you've been in church this past week. 
He didn't say, oh, man, you're so mature. Look at all the things that you do. Jesus didn't elevate others or declare them better because of their acts of service. And yet, how many times do we do that? But Jesus said this. He said, look, if you really want to get a a glimpse into the bottom line, if you want to get a glimpse into somebody's spiritual condition, the true condition of their heart, Jesus said, look at what they value. So I've said that to get us to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. And we've been here before, and some of you probably have this passage memorized. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. And this is what Jesus himself had to say. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroy them and where thieves break in and steal. All right, so don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth which moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Um, In other words, listen, don't spend all your time collecting things here on this earth that are temporary, things that you'll end up losing. Don't set up your affections on those things. Can, can I give you a personal application? Caleb's not in here. Oh, there he is over there. So I, t- I, I told him, I said, listen, I'm going to share this. It's okay. He says, okay. Um, so we had this garden. We did it together, you know, and it's a man thing. And uh, so last year we planted some onions in the garden. And if you know anything about planting onions, it takes a long time to harvest onions. It just takes a long time for onions to go. Colt, you need to make sure you know that. So if you ever plant onions, it takes a long time. Um, so anyway, we planted some onions and it took a long time. And back in April, May, we harvested those onions and, the, and they, were, they were good size onions. Some of them the size of baseball, even bigger. And, and uh, we, had, we had pulled them and we put them in the in the uh, garage and we had set them up so they'd have a chance to dry out and we'd be able to use them and I was really excited we had a good amount of onions and I would come out of the house and I'd walk through and I would see the onions and I would notice that they were disappearing and my loving son who just loves people anytime somebody would come over he'd get this this hankering I guess that's what you call it he'd give onions away so I noticed that they kept disappearing. And finally I said, buddy, what are you doing? You can't be giving. No, I shouldn't be saying that, should I? <laughs> what are you doing giving all the onions away? That's my onions. That's my, my onions. <laughs> and so, and, and so I, I said, man, you can't be doing that. But I, I got some plans for those onions. And I'm thinking in my mind, all these things I can do with these onions. Let's fast forward a couple of months. So I go, I go out, and, I, and I'm walking through, and I go, oh, man, I need to get an onion. So I walked, went over to the table to get myself an onion, and Alita, there wasn't any onions there. The skins were there, but there was no onions there. The wax moths had got into all the onions and eat every one of them up. You feel sad, don't you? And so really this passage of scripture should say, don't store up for yourselves onions on earth where moth and... (laughs) I had a friend that had come back from Alaska and he brought a bunch of fish back from Alaska. He was so excited until the electricity went off and he was on vacation. Yeah. Don't store up for yourself salmon in your refrigerator thinking that they'll be there later on down the line. I mean, how many times does 
Does that happen with us? How many times have you, have you seen something like that happen? I mean, you wanted to hoard something, you wanted to keep something off, or you wanted to save something, and all of a sudden to realize it was just temporary and something happened to it. Moths got into it, it rusted, or thieves broke in and, and stole it. Have you ever had more than you needed, and for whatever the reason, you, were, you, you weren't generous, but you were stingy? And the end result was you ended up losing what you thought you had, but really wasn't yours to begin with. So Jesus said, don't store up treasures on earth where moss and eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. But he says, store up for your treasures in heaven, the eternal, where moss and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and, and steal. And listen to the last piece that Jesus said, and this is, this is really key for us today. Because he says in verse 21, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. In other words, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. The word heart leads us to the thought of affections, our affections, our sense of affections. And what he's talking about here is, listen, if you want to know where your affections are, take a look at your treasure. If you want to know where your affections are, take a look at where your eyes is, is focused, where you're swiping the credit card or what is it that you're holding on to because where our treasure is is an indication of what has our attention, what we're focused on, what we're attached to. Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about because think about us. I mean, how many times have you made an investment or or there was something that you purchased or something that, um, a stock, um, and you find yourself all of a sudden beginning to spend more time looking or gazing or evaluating how that thing or that investment is, is doing. How many times does our attitude rise and fall based on some numbers that we see that takes place in New York? We're having a good day because the stock market's up. We're having a bad day because the stock market is down. And Jesus said where our treasure is, that's where we'll find the affections of our heart. Jesus said if you want to know where your heart is, check your money. Because it gives us a picture of what we think is most important. And so it's, it's either going to be on that which is temporary or that which is eternal. How many of us focus on, spend a lot of time and effort focused on those things that one day will pass away? That's true. But when we grasp the significance of what Jesus is saying, it's pretty, pretty scary because if it's true and the stats are true, then this is what we're learning. How we spend our time isn't a primary indicator of the ownership of our heart. In other words, reading God's word, being in a small group, as crucial as they are for spiritual maturity, spiritual growth, as well as serving in a place of ministry, those things are great. They're wonderful. They're awesome. But these are outward actions. These outward actions are not the primary indicators of or the ownership of our heart. And if what Jesus said is true, you make note of this right here, because just because we're a committed attender does not mean that we are a committed follower. Let me say that again. Just because you're a committed attender does not mean that you are a committed follower. Just because everything looks good on the outside doesn't mean that your heart is 
right. I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 18. We're going to look at a story in just a second in Luke chapter 18. Then I want to take you to a story which gives us a little bit different picture in Luke chapter 19. But in Luke chapter 18, we find the story in this gospel of a rich young man, a ruler who had money. Matter of fact, he had more money than what he needed. Now, right off here, some of you guys saying, okay, you're talking about a rich man. Well, that really doesn't have anything to do to me. That doesn't apply to me. But let me say this. If you've got a roof over your head, you've got indoor plumbing, if you've got clothes on your back and food to eat, you are considered rich by the world's standards. Rich. 30%. 1.3%. Matter of fact, $30,000. If you make $30,000, if that's your income, you're in the top 1.3% of the richest people in the world. Think about that. We are rich here in America. And at the end of this story, Jesus looks at the crowd and he said this. And he said, it isn't just hard for a rich person to go to heaven, but it's almost impossible. I was having lunch with Dan this past week and we were talking about his trip to Liberia and I said well Dan tell me let's just talk about what you experienced and he said it's really funny I'm having a hard time coming back to America and seeing what I see he said you know he said here we are financially rich but how many times are we spiritually poor and I was in a place where they were financially poor but they were spiritually rich and Dan said I understand a little bit better now why the scripture has to say and what Jesus has to say about it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the gates of heaven. And today as we read the story, I, want, I don't want us to bypass what Jesus is saying to us. This is what I want you to ask as we go through this next little bit. I want you to ask the question, Jesus, what is it you're saying? What is it you're saying to me? Because as we talk about finances over the next several weeks, we, we want to talk about the heart. Because that's really the issue. It's the heart. And so, so here's a guy that wasn't bashful of all about his desire to go in heaven, this rich young ruler. And he asked Jesus what he needed to do, and Jesus told him. But he said there were some things that needed to happen first. You, you may remember that story. He comes to Jesus, what is it I need to do to in, inherit eternal life? What is it? Tell me, Jesus, what I need to do. And Jesus said, well, listen, you know the commands. Go do them. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie. Do not covet. Do not steal. And this rich young ruler knew. He goes, man, I got that, baby. Okay, tell me more because I've got that part. And Jesus said, look, you can go to heaven, but what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to take your money, by the way, that happens to be at the top of your priority list and on the throne of your heart, and you're going to have to put me there. And you would think that since this young, rich young ruler was so adamant on knowing what eternal life was, so intent on going to heaven, that he would have done anything that Jesus would have asked him, regardless of the cost. And look at the story in the beginning of Luke 18, and let's just see sort of what happened because it says in verse 18 there in Luke chapter 18 once a religious leader asked Jesus the question good teacher what should I do to inherit eternal life now that's not an unusual question is it it was not an unusual question back then and it's not an unusual question today I've been asked that question at least twice this past week 
What is it that I need to do? Can you tell me a little bit more about Jesus and about eternal life? What is it that I need to do? So, so let's just play this out just a little bit. And let's just imagine that we're out having lunch at a restaurant and we're having a conversation and we're talking about your relationship with the Lord. And let's just say somebody sitting at a table nearby overhears what you're talking about. And they just happen to lean over Kevin and say, man, listen, I, I overhear you talking about Jesus. And I, I really would like to know, what is it that I must do to have eternal life? I mean, I've been around a lot of people that call themselves Christians. But listen, can you tell me what is it that I need to do to have eternal life? To go to heaven? Now, for the person that's trained, you're like going, yeah, baby, I know. And you start off and you, you, you say, man, well, let me, let me just, let me pull out my phone. Let me pull up some verses. And you take them back to the Old Testament and you talk to them about what it was like in the early days and what it was like for sin enter to the world and that all of us are sinners. And somewhere along that line, you begin to think about some of the verses. You've been trained and so you know some verses that you'd like to be able to share. So it's maybe... You know, one of, the, one of the favorite ones is John 3, 16, right? So probably somewhere along the line, as you're talking to them about salvation and what they need to do to inherit eternal life, probably somewhere along that line, you're going to share something like John. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus loves us. And that he did something for us that only he could do. What we have to do is not only believe but receive and then I would begin to walk them through some passages of Scripture in the, in the book of Romans where Paul talked about the, the fact that we are all sinners in Romans 3.23 or for the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23 or in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrated and showed us his love that while we were still sinners, he died for us. We didn't have to get ourselves right. We didn't have to be perfect. But God died for us when we were still living in sin. And then I would come to that passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 10 where it says that if we confess with the mouth and believe in the heart that God has raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And I would look at them and I would say something along this line, and you know who can be saved? And I would take them to Paul, uh, Romans chapter 10 verse 13 where Paul said, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I'd look at them, as I often do, and say, is there any reason why you wouldn't be willing today to give your life to Christ, to trust him, to obey him, and to follow him? And if they said yes, you know what I'd do? I'd say, well, listen, man, I'd love to lead you in a prayer. I'd love for you to pray and for you to ask the Lord for forgiveness, because the Bible talks about that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to confess your sin, to believe that Jesus is Lord, and to commit to follow him. That's what I'd say to them. And I'd pray right there with them. And after that, man, we would celebrate the fact that they want to follow Jesus. They want to commit their life to live for him. And then I would ask them a question, which I often do. Listen, man, is there somebody in your life that you know would be so excited about their decision to follow Jesus that you want to tell them first thing and they would give me a name and I do this all the time and I'd say look let's call them right now and I'd get out a phone and I'd dial their number and they would talk to them how many times did that happen and after we got off the phone I would 
I would talk to him about the importance of obedience in baptism, about that, that next step and what it's like to follow Christ in baptism and the symbolism behind it. Then I would talk to him about the importance of, of, of finding a church. I would invite them to come to Heritage that they would like, but I would say, listen, man, you find yourself a church body, a place that you can call home, and you, you begin to grow spiritually. And I would tell them what it was like, and you begin to share life, and I would tell them what it was like. And I, begin, I would tell you, listen, you begin to use your gifts and talents to serve to serve others. But let's just say that that wasn't just anybody that we were talking to. Let's just say that it was the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler. And, and, and I talked to him just like I would any other person and I followed the same pattern that I would follow. And let's just say that the rich young ruler, he got involved with a church family and he started going to a small group or a Bible study and he began to volunteer to serve and he began to become a very important part of that church. He might even go off to a mission trip and everything on the outside from our perspective would look wonderful. I mean, because he was doing it all. He was baptized. He was a member. But when it came time to give an account for his life, Heaven wouldn't be his destination, but hell would be. And here, the rich young ruler was the whole time thinking he was a good guy because he participated in some religious activities. I mean, at least that's, that's what he was told that was so important. But even with the religious activity and with all of his dedication, this is what I want to say. His heart, his heart never really belonged to the Lord. Jesus knew it. And that's why we see in this story Jesus' response to the rich young ruler. Because when, when he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God, Jesus didn't talk to him about kneeling and repeating, or repeating, or repeating a sinner's prayer. He didn't take him down to the Jordan River to, for him to be baptized, but he looked at him and he said, listen, if you really want to know there's something that needs to be dealt with right now in your life. There's an adjustment that needs to be made because there's something else in your life that has first place. See, there's something in your, else in your life that has first priority. There's something else in your life that seems to have your affections and your full attention. And Jesus says, where our treasure is, that's where our heart will also be. And for you to give your heart to me, Jesus would say, there's an exchange that's going to have to happen. Because it's not just about all the stuff that we do on the, on the outside. And so Jesus didn't tell him to pray. He didn't tell him to join the local temple. He didn't tell him to get involved in a small, small group. But look at what he tells him in verse 22. And boy, we don't like this. Sell your possessions, all your possessions. Sell it all, give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. Then come follow me. Jesus said, listen, I want you to take that which is important to you. I want you to sell your possessions. I want you to give the money to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven, the eternal. Then I want you to come and follow me. 
And it was a reality check. Because here's this guy that was begging for Jesus to tell him how to have eternal life. And yet he wasn't willing to let go of his affections for his finances. He wanted eternal life, but not at the expense of his treasure. And look at what it says in verse 23. It tells us, but when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. He had a lot more than what he needed. Why do you think that he was sad? I'll tell you why. Because he loved his money more than he did Jesus. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we say, how in the world could he be so stupid? And yet we do the same thing. The same thing. How many of us here today, as well as around the world, listen, we flock to Christian concerts, we go to conferences, we go on mission trips, we're members of local church, we spend tremendous amounts of time in Bible studies, and yet eternally we are separated from God, not because of the things on the outside don't look great, but because our hearts never belong to the Father. There's one thing that you can pull away from today. It's easy for us to go through the motions and yet our hearts be far from him. But Jesus said where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. That's where your heart. So this rich young ruler, the guy who wanted to have eternal life, he wasn't willing to make the exchange and he walked away. Now, let's look at a story in Luke chapter 19, which Jonathan made reference to last week. A guy by the name of Zacchaeus, the wee little man, who was a prominent tax collector, who was a guy that, that was known to be crooked. He was Jewish, and yet nobody wanted anything to do with him because he robbed them. He stole from them. He could charge whatever he wanted to charge, and they had to, they had to pay it. He was a chief tax collector. And the story is that Zacchaeus heard that Jesus was coming to town. And so Zacchaeus had heard all the, the stories about Jesus and the things that he had done. So he wanted to see Jesus. So he went into, into the area and he got up in a tree where he knew that he thought that Jesus would pass. And he waited for Jesus to come. And Jesus came because Jesus knew. He knew that Zacchaeus was searching. And here's Zacchaeus in the tree and Jesus on the ground. And Jesus walks up underneath. He looks at Zacchaeus and he said, hey, Zacchaeus, listen, bro, come on out of that tree because I'm coming to your house today. And later that afternoon, we see them in, a, in an area where Zacchaeus, they're in a close proximity to one another. And we don't know everything that took place and we don't know all the questions that were asked and all the little details but what we do know is what the story has to say. And there was an exchange that was made that day. Look at Luke chapter 19, verse 8, and look at what it says. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord, and he said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. Lord, if I've cheated people of their taxes, I will give back to them four times as much. We don't find any mention of Jesus telling Zacchaeus how terrible he was or addressing the fact that he was crooked and dishonest. The only thing that we know that Zacchaeus, in the presence of the Lord, that his heart began to change because that's what happens when we meet Jesus face to face. We see our sin. Zacchaeus recognized that his life was a mess and that he was a sinner. And right there on the spot, he stood up 
And he said, Lord, today I, what I want to do is I want to give half what I have. I want to give it to the poor. And anybody that I've cheated four times as much, I'm going to pay them back. And look at what Jesus had to say to him in the response that he, that he made. Salvation has come to this house today. Salvation. Salvation. Not because he prayed a prayer, not because he joined the local temple, not because he gave all of his money away, but don't miss it. How he treated the money he had was an indicator of the condition of his heart. And what he was saying at that moment in time, Jesus, you're a whole lot more important than any of all of this, this other stuff that I've got over here that's temporary. How he treated the money that he had was an indicator of the condition of his heart. And what he did that day demonstrated there was heart change. So I say all of this to, to make this point, and you can write it down. What we're going to talk about over the next few weeks isn't just about our money, but our heart. But most important, eternity. Watch this little video clip as we finish up. The scriptures describe money as God's primary rival for our devotion. If that's true, if the worship of money is one of the gravest dangers of the spiritual life, then it's imperative to know more than a few Bible verses pulled out of context. It's imperative to know the full counsel of Scripture on the nature of money and the source of its power. Some say money is simply neutral, a brute tool like any other. Some say money's a lot like a brick. Bricks can break windows. They can break bone. But they can also build cathedrals. You cannot blame the brick for how it's used seems simple. It's not like money has a will of its own, right? If money is like a brick, what happens when we replace the word money with the word bricks? You cannot serve both God and bricks. Hmm. How hard it is for those who have bricks to enter into the kingdom of God. That doesn't seem right. Keep your life free from the love of bricks. The love of bricks is a root of all evil. Perhaps money isn't like a brick after all, because money is more than just an object. Money is one, a store of value, and two, a system of exchange. It's a pathway to countless things our hearts crave. We can trade money for homes and cars and vacations, for power and fame, luxury and esteem. Money can be a tool, but it can also be an idol. The Bible describes money as something that flies and seduces, chokes and entangles us, testifies against us as though it were a spirit, a false god with a will of its own to fool and enslave us. Jesus calls money unrighteous. The Psalms and Proverbs contrast trusting in God with trusting in wealth. They warn against unrighteous means of acquiring and using wealth and against gaining so much wealth that we become arrogant and satisfied and forget our need for God. The Bible even tells us that the desire for wealth is a snare that leads us into harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. In the hands of the godly and wise, money can be a tool of extraordinary good. Whether you have a fortune or two pennies, you can convert what Jesus calls unrighteous mammon and consecrate it for kingdom service transforming earthly assets into heavenly treasures. You can use it to serve others in amazing ways. But money can also use you 
as it deceives and distorts, seduces and enslaves. So ask yourself, is money your master or is it your servant? Is money an idol in your heart or a tool in your hands for the construction of the kingdom of God? So over the next several weeks, we're going to be dealing with the issue of finances, and I, I, I expect probably attendance to go down. <laughs> but listen, I am really excited about sharing some things with you, and I think I've got more of a passion for what I'm going to share with you over the next couple of weeks because I, will, I feel what God is trying to teach me in my own life, and I promise you, you don't want to miss this. Because I'm going to teach you some things that maybe you've never heard before that's going to open up your eyes and you're going to go, oh my word. And you're going to hear some things and you're going to understand a little bit more about why God said what God said and what he instituted, what he instituted. So I, and I just, man, listen, I, I, I pray you'll come back and you're going to join with us over the next several weeks as we look at this issue of making changes financially and what God's doing my question as I end out today is, I want you to remember this. We're going to be talking about the heart because that's the essence of what we're aiming for. Jesus isn't concerned about your church attendance as much as he is your heart. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't need your money. He owns everything, Mark. He owns it all. The cattle on a thousand hills, he doesn't, he doesn't need anything that you have. And you're going to learn during this, he gave you everything that you have. He entrusted that to you. But we're going to see, man, listen, the huge part that the heart plays as we walk through our time together. Um, we're going to be doing this a little bit more as we walk through. And I, I want you to know, sometimes you want to communicate with us at the end of a service. And we're going to get more um, adapt to doing this. But if you're here today and there's some type of a decision that, you're, that you feel is on your heart, uh, we've got that, that text, that HCC text line that you can text us. If you want to take your phone and put it in there, you want to write it down, 352-358-7770. 352-358-7770. And you can text us. If you're here today and you're saying, man, I'd love for, I've never made a decision to follow Jesus. All you have to do is just type the word yes into that text. And it'll come, it'll come back and it'll, it'll, it'll uh, give you an opportunity to respond and let us know what's going on so that we can have that conversation with you. Or maybe you're here. A lot of times we have you that want to share prayer requests and there are cards in the back of these pews that you can fill out and place in these offering boxes and we gather together as a staff. We pray over them. But you never know when throughout the week you may have a prayer request like we did this past week when we were missing Chuck and we couldn't find Chuck. So first thing I did, I got out my phone and I, I put it, you know, prayer request. I text that number and I text prayer. It gave me an opportunity and I said, this is what's going on. I need some people to pray. And so if there's prayer requests that you have, you can text it to us. You just type that number in, 352 um, 358-7770, and just type prayer. And you have an opportunity to fill that in and let us know what's going on so we can pray for you. My goal, we would become... Not just committed attenders, but we would become a committed followers of Christ. Because it's really his, it's our hearts that he wants. It's what he wants is our hearts. Because when he has our hearts, I'll tell you what's going to happen. There'll be an impact that happens, a ripple effect 
that happens outside the walls of these church where people's lives are changed. Father, I ask today that as we leave this place, you would remind us of the stories that we've heard today. And Father, as I ask early on, what is it, Jesus, that you're saying to me? Help us to respond appropriately. Father, we thank you for your grace in the midst of the tragedies that we've experienced this week within our community. And we thank you for your mercy, Father, for, for us being able to be reunited with, with Chuck when he returns home. Thank you for keeping him safe in those woods for those days. I pray today for that service that will take place for, um, for the death of that young teenager at the school. And, Father, for all the emotions that will be wound up today and when they celebrate his life. And I pray for those students and parents and, and teachers that are involved. Father, would you, would you be there in that place? And may they see that, Lord, that you are the only thing that we can anchor our hope in. Thank you, Father, for the, for the tremendous things that you can continue to do here in the lives of our people. May we can be committed to not only following you, but taking the word of Jesus outside the walls of this church so that the world may know who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.